for me, health equity is about making sure everyone has a fair shot to be as healthy as possible. It's that simple. But to do that, we really have to attend to these broader social forces that keep some people less healthy than others. Otherwise, we're not going to get there, right? So these broader forces matter for decisions across a range of outcomes that all end up intersecting. It matters for how much money goes into our schools. It matters for where we put the hospital or the health clinic. And on the negative side, like, where do we put the landfill, right? Um, that's going to affect people's health too. But then are you used to interacting uh, with people? Do you have a doctor that you can trust um, to have your interest at heart? Like all these things um, end up being related and we can't think about them um, in a vacuum. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the CEO and co-founder of In On Health. In today's episode, I speak with Neil Lewis Jr., assistant professor at Cornell University and Weill Cornell Medicine. He's a behavioral scientist studying the structural inequality in American society and its impact on how we make decisions and on healthcare disparities in our country. In this conversation, we not only talk about those systemic and structural issues of inequity in American society, but then how they relate to health inequities and disparities and how we also link them to themes around behavioral science and public health communication. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So I am very excited to have on the In On Health podcast today, Dr. Neil Lewis Jr., assistant professor at Cornell University and Weill Cornell Medicine. Thank you so much for being with me today, Neil. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. So um, for those listening in, um, my good friend Neil has been involved as a behavioral scientist in public health communications work and other work associated with structural inequality in American society. So I'm very excited for this conversation and to hear your, your perspective. So let's just to kick us off, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? What influenced you in terms of your career choices to ultimately become a behavioral scientist? Sure, yeah. So, you know, in terms of background, um, so I was born in Jamaica, but I immigrated to the U.S. as a kid and grew up mostly in Central Florida, uh, in the Orlando area. Um, and I lived there until undergrad when I moved to Central New York to go to college um, here at Cornell. Um, studied economics and psychology, did research in sociology, and after that, moved to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to get my PhD in social psychology before coming back uh, to join the faculty here. But in terms of that trajectory, I kind of stumbled into the behavioral sciences, actually. You know, I was always interested in issues of inequality and trying to tackle those issues. But for much of my life, um, I thought I'd do that through the law. So, you know, growing up, and if you ask people who knew me growing up, uh, they would tell you that for the longest time, I thought I was going to become a lawyer. Um, okay. And, you know, after that, <laughs> right. after that, I thought I'd work in the business world. But when I actually explored those things, they didn't feel like the right fit for me. And research was the one thing that sort of clicked and felt right. Um, when I started doing it in undergrad, the, the more I did it, the more rewarding it was, even when it was difficult. 
And so it was a way to study and understand the issues that I cared about um, in the world and to maybe figure out um, some strategies for trying to address uh, some of those issues. So that's sort of um, how I got into uh, the behavioral sciences. That's, that's great. I mean, I think what's interesting about behavioral science is people come at it from different academic pathways. So maybe you could talk yeah. a little bit about, you know, some people come from an economics pathway. Sounds like you came more from a sociological pathway. Can you explain, and you're very multidisciplinary. So can you explain a little bit more about that before we like dig into to kind of the, the meat of the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, I, I mentioned I've been all over the social sciences, um, but the initial topical issue that I was really interested in was the issue of educational inequality, right? And so the factors, trying to understand the factors that led to disparities in educational outcomes. Okay. Um, so that's sort of uh, where I started uh, my research career. But as I did that work, it eventually uh, led me to studying health disparities and health equity issues as well. Because many, it turns out many of the factors that undermine education uh, also undermine uh, health. So that health became sort of the second domain of work that then eventually led me to also studying environmental injustices because those drive disparities in both education and health. And to really understand all of these um, issues, the answers aren't in any one discipline. That's right. like, um, you know, the academy is organized into disciplines, but life, you know, pulls from all of these um, disciplines. And so that's part of why I've been sort of taking this multidisciplinary perspective. Okay. But, you know, it's throughout uh, the process of conducting research in those uh, domains, across those uh, domains, that I began to see this sort of bigger picture of how they're all related, how the structure of American society affects all of these outcomes that we see and talk about today. And to sort of be more concrete, I know that's sort of an abstract way of explaining it, to be a bit more concrete, what I mean is like, as I've sort of studied what led to, you know, all these education um, inequities, these health inequities, these environmental injustices, um, it became more clear how, you know, a long history of race and class segregation, things like policies like mortgage redlining, uh, really set the stage for who was a that set the stage for like who was allowed to buy houses um, in certain places, live in certain places. Uh, you can start to draw the line from all of those decisions to how we structure our society and ended up with all these outcomes that we're talking about today, okay. including outcomes now like which groups of Americans are disproportionately likely to die from the pandemic. So all these things end up being interconnected. Okay, amazing. And maybe um, this may sound like a basic question, but what is behavioral science? Because, I mean, now it's come into the public domain. Everybody's talking about nudging. You know, maybe you could explain a little bit about what behavioral science is, and then we can go into uh, um, some of our other topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny you uh, talk about it as a recent uh, phenomena and also tied in. Um, nudge to it. The behavioral sciences have been around for a long time, but the book Nudge uh, really launched it into the mainstream, um, I think. There so, you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, we've been around doing research for decades. People largely didn't know about us or think about us, but then, you know, Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote their book Nudge, and that sort of uh, cast a big spotlight on, on the field. But uh, broadly, you know, Behavioral science, though, at least the way I think about it, um, is this uh, multidisciplinary discipline, if you will, okay. that draws on um, 
insights from, from economics, from communication, from sociology, from psychology, to really understand why it is that people behave in the way that they do. Uh, what does that mean when uh, we might want to change behaviors? Like what kinds of messages might we design? What kinds of policies might we implement and the like? So using um, these insights about human behavior to understand people and then uh, when appropriate, uh, try to uh, change those behaviors. Uh, sometimes that's through nudges. That's become quite popular, but there are many other ways too. So. Okay. Okay, good. Thank you for that. So before we get into really talking about you know, health equity, public health communications, those types of kind of more targeted topics. I would love for you to share with our listeners a bit about your research on the impact of structural inequality in American society and how that influences people's behavior. You had um, a really seminal piece that's been getting a lot of traction on this topic in the context of racial disparities in the U.S. And I think it'd be great for our listeners to hear that frame and then we can kind of work down the funnel into public health communications. Yeah, I assume you're talking about the, the wealth gap piece. The wealth gap piece, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so that article um, came out, I, it was in June or something. Anyway, but it's actually related to what I was just hinting at before. And it summarized some of the research that I and others have been doing over the years on how and why Americans from different demographic backgrounds, from different walks of life, have such different understandings of how our country works, right? So um, I was actually inspired to write it in part because of this phrase that kept coming up uh, during the pandemic that really made absolutely no sense to anyone who's studied anything about inequality. And that phrase uh, is the phrase suggesting that the pandemic would be, quote, the great equalizer. Right. So when I first heard that um, phrase, I was like, what? Like, wait, like, what a second. Wait, <laughs> what are we talking about? Right. Yeah. What, what are you talking about? Like, when in the history of America has a catastrophe happened and it ended up equalizing outcomes? That's just not how this is not how works. it works. That's not how the US <laughs> works. No. Nope. Yeah. And, and so, you know, what happens is that whenever there's a shock to the system, the people who, who are in good positions end up better off. The people who are in precarious positions get screwed. And what's interesting is that, you know, poor people know this really well. Racial minorities know this really well. Rich white people seem not to get this. And so the article and broader research um, I and other inequalities have been doing was really trying to explain like why that is. And the reason is that we essentially end up living in these different worlds, uh, given how our society is structured. And that makes it really hard psychologically um, to understand each other's experiences and what's going on. Um, so. If you look um, around the nation, um, you can look at all kinds of statistics. You can look at all kinds of maps. You see this very vividly in a number of ways. And the article um, sort of um, illustrates some of this. Um, you see things like our neighborhoods are still very segregated by race and class. Our schools are very segregated. Our workplaces are very segregated. You know, the tennis courts and golf courses um, are segregated. Those aren't just random examples. There's um, a bunch of research on this, including some uh, fascinating new research um, that came out of the Harvard Business School recently about um, how we set these policies to include and exclude uh, people from these different social institutions. Right. And what that means is uh, we not only have uh, different amounts of access to resources, um, that's one way that we talk about this and you know talk about this with wealth gaps and the like, but we also end up having limited contact 
uh, with people who are different from us. Right. And so that makes it really hard to learn about those different experiences. So one of the other things you can see um, in social network data is that our social networks end up being segregated as a result of these other larger right. um, forces. And these shared common experiences are what build culture and what build our understanding of the world. So if we're not interacting, we've got these bubbles that they can't see through to how things look on the other side. Exactly. So, you know, one of the um, statistics that um, jumped out at me a couple of years ago, um, there's this big social network study noted that three quarters of white Americans don't have any non-white friends. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's a pretty jarring statistic when you think about, uh, you know, we talk about the diversity of America and there is a lot of diversity in this country. Like when you look at an aggregate level, but when you look at who's actually interacting with who, we still have lots of uh, lots of uh, segregation. So, well, Neil, I have a question in here, though. So one thing that also seems to pop out to me is not only physical space and place, but also digital, right? So then what I also hear from you is inferred is that these social networks, then they also move into the digital domain and the social networks just amplify this challenge. They don't necessarily break down the challenge. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yeah, you are thinking about that the right way. Um, You know, there's a lot of... um People love to blame social media for everything, but right. in some ways, it, it's it's reflecting what's happening what's in our day to day lives. In the day to day lives, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and it makes it easier to even pull those uh, divisions uh, further apart because sort of the way these algorithms work, they they are reinforcing more of what we want, mm-hmm. um, and that is these patterns of behavior that um, really isolate us in our bubbles of people who are very similar to us. So um, yeah, this stuff gets uh, reinforced over and over again. And so you're not interacting with people who are different than you. And that makes it really tough um, to understand other people's experiences um, and the like. Okay. Fascinating. So, um, so the title of the article for those listening is called why Americans can't see the wealth gap between white and black America. Um, And so Um, I'll add that resource into resources um, shared um, with this podcast because I think it's a really fascinating article. How does this relate to brown America? Yeah, so these things are um, all related, right? That the broader point is that we end up in these different worlds, right? That, That there are opportunities to have a more integrated society. But we really, when you look at the data, we pull apart. Uh, by race, we pull apart by class. And so we end up uh, in these different uh, silos um, in our society. So that's, I I think of, you know, the idea of brown America or black America or white America, um, all these rich America, poor America, um, uh, we end up in these different categories um, Mm -hmm. because of how we structured the rest of our society. Right. Okay. So how do we bridge this into healthcare? I mean, I can think about a few things that are coming to mind right away, but this broader societal structural issue, which is not just a structural inequality, but also lack of social cohesion, social interaction between different groups of people. So it goes all directions, right? If you know, like you're saying, poor people aren't interacting with middle class people except for in certain ways, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And then affluent people, no matter, you know, affluent people aren't interacting with others in certain ways. So you're kind of giving us this frame, which I think a lot of people relate to just thinking about their own life. 
how do we now connect this to healthcare? Like what, what does this now mean when we look at health disparities and how do you think about health equity in this construct? Yeah. So you can think about it in a couple ways. So we can think about, uh, first we can think at an infrastructure level, right? Okay. Um, about which communities are going to have high quality hospitals, um, because they have the tax base to fund those things, okay, uh, right? And w- which communities are not going to have access to that? So that's one level at which you can think about it, as well as um, living in places that are uh, are safer, or versus um, what um, some environmental justice callers call toxic communities. So living closer to environmental hazards. That's one way you can think about it. Okay. But another way that you can think about it is how this bleeds into the interpersonal interactions. Okay. Right? Uh, so if you're not used to interacting uh, with people who are different from you, then there are moments uh, when you might have an opportunity to interact that then it becomes really awkward. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I've been interested in this in the health research is thinking about things like doctor-patient interactions. And there's a fascinating body of research on how fraught, uncomfortable, awkward, like cross-race doctor-patient interactions are. So Mm -hmm. uh, specifically like minority patients with white doctors, like it's a very, the interactions tend to be very awkward. uh, And because of how awkward the interactions are, you can actually link that to worse health outcomes for patients in those situations. So are you saying there's actually research that looks at this type of stuff that you're talking about? Okay. Yeah. Um, so because people are so uncomfortable with interacting with others who are different from them, like mm-hmm. the, the interaction's awkward. And so from the patient side, it's like, well, why does my doctor feel like, seems like, uh, like they're uncomfortable around me. Um, and then the doctor is like worried about like how the patient is perceiving them. And it sort of spirals into these unproductive, um, uh, interactions and, you know, undermines trust and other things like that in the interaction. So you have lower um, adherence to treatment um, and worse health outcomes as a result. So these are some of the ways in which these broader um, sort of social forces end up influencing even micro-level interactions. Oh, uh, and it's worse for our health. Yep, yep. Yeah. So you've kind of draw drew the line from the structural issues and how that relates to like health infrastructure or the environments in which people live, which could make them more prone to adverse health outcomes. But then you went all the way down to like the individual interactions. I know I'm thinking about a conversation I had with um, our friend, Dr. Brittany James at the Institute um, for Anti-Racism Medicine, where she talks about this exact issue of actually how you try to train physicians to be more comfortable, more aware of how they interact with people of different backgrounds. Um, And also there's an issue of not having enough um, physicians of color as well. So, you know, people that come from those backgrounds in the medical spaces are limited. So to your point, they haven't had those interactions. so They don't really have a great baseline. So it's connecting to a few themes we've talked about before. Yeah. And I think that that sort of connects to, you know, the other question you asked about, like, how I think about this in relation to health equity. Like, you know, for me, health equity is about making sure everyone has a fair shot to be as healthy as possible. It's that simple. But to do that, we really have to attend to these broader social forces that keep some people less healthy than others. Otherwise, we're not going to get there, right? So these broader forces matter for decisions across a range of outcomes that all end up intersecting. It matters for how much money goes into our schools. It matters for where we put the hospital or the health clinic. And on the negative side, like, where do we put the landfill? 
right? Um, that's going to affect people's health too. But then are you used to interacting uh, with people? Do you have a doctor that you can trust um, to have your interest at heart? Like all these things um, end up being related and we can't think about them um, in a vacuum. Right. So let's tie this to um, your work as a behavioral scientist. So, you know, maybe to ground this, I think you've laid the groundwork for a really good framework, like to think about this um, because it's such a complex issue. So how do we ground this now into um, some of your work in behavioral science? I know you've been doing a lot of work across the country on public health communications, you know, with uh, COVID, with other things you've been advising, for example, New York City, federal agencies. Maybe you could give a little bit of context into some of the things you're working on and like what this looks like in, in the day-to-day practice of, of the work. Yeah. Um, so public health communication is largely an exercise of persuasion, frankly. It's like one way to think about it. And if you want to, uh, if you want people to change their behaviors from what they're doing now to something else that let's say the virologists or whoever else it would be helpful to address a public health issue like COVID, uh, then you have to understand sort of three sets of things and how they interact. And these things are, um, I'll tie back to this broader frame. So you need to know something about the source and how that source is perceived uh, by different people. So, you know, is Fauci telling you to do um, this behavior or is Donald Trump, right? Um, And how are both of those perceived? You have to like think about those things. So that's one element. Uh, the second thing is you have to think about the message. Like, what exactly are you saying to people? Um, and what does that mean in this moment that we're in? The third thing um, is the audience. So who is actually listening to um, or watching this? Um, and what have their experiences been like in life um, that affect how they're going to hear what you're saying? Um, so the same message, get your vaccine, will come across differently depending on who's saying it, um, how it's said, um, and who's hearing it. And so my research that has studied how different groups of Americans have experienced this country uh, throughout their lives um, that we're living in, how that affects who they find trustworthy, who they don't, uh, how comfortable they feel in different kinds of institutions. Understanding all of those dynamics um, becomes really important for figuring out uh, the public health strategy. It helps us to know when it's a good idea to say, have Dr. Fauci get on TV and say something. Um, and when he's probably not gonna be that helpful and instead we need to like have some real talk in the barbershop because that's where the persuasion is gonna happen, right? And so like that's where um, my work has come in in these various advisory councils and task forces. It's to look at this broader uh, research landscape um, and help decision makers sort of figure out which strategies might be appropriate depending on which audiences they're trying to reach, um, what behaviors they're trying to change, and so on. So, Neil, you've been doing this research for some time and really, you know, frankly, battling to show its importance. Now, everybody's calling, your phone's ringing nonstop <laughs> for your expertise, particularly around health equity, public health communication, behavioral science. Tell me more about how that all has evolved for you over the last 18, 24 months. Yeah, the the past 18 months have been a wild ride. Um, So, you know, I've been doing this work on disparities uh, my whole career and got some pushback for it uh, for a long time. And the reason for that connects back to what uh, Brittany James talked about in her episode um, when she talked about sort of racism in academia. 
Um, so the thing was, you know, whenever I studied white people, everyone loved it, and it was relatively easy to get that work published in the top journals in my field. Whenever I studied uh, people of color, it was always, you know, too applied, or um, feedback was it wasn't going to contribute enough to our basic understanding. Um, and there are very, these various racially coded ways that um, academics found to say, we're not really interested in learning about the experiences of people of color. So that was the feedback um, I got um, early in my career up until, frankly, 2020. Uh, but then once all the news stories um, started breaking about racial disparities in the pandemic, all of a sudden that work I used to be told was irrelevant became recognized as super important. Um, and then my inbox and phone started blowing up um, and haven't stopped since then. So, you know, a lot of people who are now working on health equity issues kept reaching out. And so that's how I ended up on these task forces. Um, and it wasn't just health equity folks that recognized uh, the work. Uh, the field eventually came around too. Um, and one of the uh, interesting things that ended up happening was ended up winning two early career awards uh, last year for some of this work. So Congratulations, um, that's really... <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, it was interesting how the pandemic really shifted the field's perspective on what is important for advancing the behavioral science, um, the behavioral sciences. And I think there's now growing recognition that these issues of equity are important for us to focus on as a field moving forward. Right. No, that's really uh, encouraging to hear. And I'm sure for people that have been fighting the fight, that's... Uh, you know, that gives them a, a boost of positive energy and, and, and to really keep them also going. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, keep, keep going. Uh, people will come around. Very much like how you explained to our listeners, behavioral science has been around for a long time. And then the book Nudge came along. <laughs> um, Behavior Change Communications, BCC, as it's called in public health land, has been around for decades, right? There's so a lot of research mm -hmm. on public health communications in a population health context that's been done. And now the issues around the pandemic and communications have put this whole field into a spotlight when it wasn't really something anyone <laughs> thought so much about. What, yeah. what have we learned, Neil? Like, what have we learned? Because I, I think the whole field of behavior change communications has just morphed because of COVID, because of the pandemic. What would you say we're kind of learning in that space? Because I think before the pandemic, behavior change communications, to be frank, is pretty antiquated in how people th thought about it. Public health has been pretty slow to think about digital communication. And so now with everything going on, behavioral science, digital communication, trusted measures, all these things are happening around public health communications and, and we're learning clearly some things that are working and not working. The field is changing. What do you see? What have you observed in the last 18 months as you've been deeply doing this work and how you think the field of public health communication is changing um, because of everything that's gone on with the pandemic? Yeah, I think we are learning a lot more about um, the importance of diving into uh, the technical term um, being the heterogeneity of responses to message. And by that, I mean, like, just how much um, different people uh, will respond to different things, right? So there's a way in which uh, the fields um, have organized for a long time around sort of building these grand theories, uh, let's say theories around social norms, uh, for instance. And, you know, those theories are good starting points, but um, how you actually implement them in practice 
varies a lot uh, depending on the audiences. And I think part of it is we have you know better technology now for being able to study these things, right? Um, we can do many more sophisticated studies to figure out like when should you send a text message versus like put um, you know uh, an, an ad on the radio versus um, a Facebook um, ad or, or something else. Like uh, we're better able to study that now, but um, really taking this more nuanced approach to really understand those complex interactions um, is something I think we're um, recognizing we need to spend more time on. I mean, there's some new broader papers um, that have been coming out over the past year on really the need for taking this heterogeneity uh, seriously um, if we want our work to have big impact. Right. So, so what I hear you saying in summary is you're talking about personalization. Like how do we actually in our ideal sense, you know, not just put people in quote unquote traditional buckets of what we think they think or what we think they want to hear, but actually really getting that deeper insight into it, kind of micro segments or like individual level behavioral insight, right? That might allow us to be more persuasive to, to these one-off engagements as opposed to this broader swath of more generalized communication. So that's kind of what I'm hearing you talk about is like really personalization. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one way of thinking about it. Um, and the other way is that figuring out when do we need that micro personalization and when is the broad message good enough, right? Um, just, uh, just knowing that <laughs> in and of itself uh, could get us uh, much further. Like there are some times that the, the general message uh, will get us pretty far, but sometimes we need the, the more deeply tailored um, approach. But knowing what those boundaries are, like that's something we still have to figure out sometimes. Um, and really, if we also want to map this on to things like the vaccine, vaccine uh, uptake trajectory, figuring out like, well, will the general message get us to 30% of people, 40% of people, 50% of people? Like where, at which point should we shift our strategy? Like that's, those are the kinds of things that we need to figure out. Um, and I think there's much greater appreciation of that um, over the past year. Fascinating. Tell me about, at least in the health space or health equity space, what are you, what are some of the things you're excited about that you're working on right now? Yeah, I mean, um, some of it is related to what we were just talking about, that, um, you know, I, because of COVID, have been sort of thrown into some new things, including uh, doing a lot of work on vaccines, uh, not something that I, before the pandemic, I thought I would be doing, but um, I am now. Um, it is um, important to figure out these strategies, uh, particularly for marginalized communities. Um, so that's where I'm doing a lot of work. I'm starting to also continue work on some other health issues. I'm starting some work um, in the cancer space now. There are lots of cancer disparities too. Okay. Um, and some of that has come up over the past year. I've been starting some new collaborations, um, doing some work in that space. But overall, though, I, I think this broader question of like, which strategies should we use when mm-hmm. is one I'm fascinated by and by studying that across a number of disease areas, uh, a number of uh, communities, um, that's what I'm really excited about now is trying to figure out some of these strategies that we can then learn from um, and be better prepared in the future. Right. That's amazing. So, I mean, this has come through 
in the conversation, but I'd love for you to, I ask every guest this question, like, why are you in on health equity? Maybe you can share kind of to summarize our conversation. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, I want people to live long, healthy and prosperous lives, uh, to live out their dreams. Uh, that's one of the sort of underlying missions of my research lab is to figure out how to help people do that. But a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, I spend a lot of my time looking at things like life expectancy charts um, or um, many other health outcomes. And consistently what you'll see is that people like me and uh, communities that I come from get the short end of the stick. Um, you know, I'm a black man in America. I grew up in a low income family. When I go to the CDC database and look at the cross tabs um, of health statistics, I think about my family. I think about my friends. I think about the fact that we probably won't live as long as others born into different circumstances. Now, if that was purely random, I don't think it would bother me that much. You know, I, I like random variation, uh, but it's a systemic uh, disparities um, that can be traced to the choices that our broader society makes every day that bother me. Um, this country chooses via the policies that we make, the practices we enact to allow some people my people, uh, to live shorter, worse quality lives than others. And I find that unacceptable. And, you know, to quote Angela Davis, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. And so that's why I'm in on health. Thank you so much for that. That's very powerful. And, and, and one thing, you know, I learn over and over again and that I'm trying to highlight is leaders such as yourself are showing, you know, the world that this is deeply personal. Health equity is not just policy like it's real life I mean, this comes up yeah. over and over again so thank you so much for sharing that I've really appreciated your insights that you've shared you've made behavioral science uh easier to understand at least for me but also <laughs> uh the structural connectivity of our structural inequalities and how they influence individuals so we appreciate you and all the important work you're doing thank you neil thanks for having me on the show kp Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.